hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. Our guest is David Pearson, the CEO of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. He's also currently a Meyer Innovation Fellow, industry adjunct at the Australian Alliance for Social Enterprise at the University of South Australia, and a senior advisor for the Institute of Global Homelessness. We began by talking about the dimensions of the homelessness problem. It's like how much do we want to talk about COVID and how much do we not? But mm. COVID changed a lot um, and COVID showed us how, you know, you can solve social problems if the time and effort resources are there. And we did temporarily shelter large numbers of people who were rough sleeping. So it's shown a really positive thing, but it's also obviously showing the really negatives as well, that the housing system is in crisis and getting worse, the housing prices are going through the roof and that's creating problems with the private rental market and making housing affordability that was already bad worse. So there's sort of positives and negatives in this COVID story, but in some senses, COVID has just exacerbated what has always been the challenge that we have, that with focus and attention, we can make progress to certain parts of this broader problem of homelessness and housing affordability but there is some really deep structural challenges that need to be faced. And I guess our work as the Australian Alliance is say, look, we are very supportive of the campaigns to try and deal with those structural issues. But while we're waiting for those kind of big policy levers to be pulled by government, there is things that community action supported by philanthropy that we can do to make improvements to systems that support very vulnerable people right now. And if you sort of ignore the whole COVID environment and just look at how efforts to end homelessness around the world have worked, there's really two models. There's the Finland model where massive government investment deal with the deep structural problems in society uh, and they've ended homelessness. And that's, you know, the only country in the world to really do that. Or there's the Canadian North American model where they have focused on um, a particular type of homelessness in a particular place and said, we as a community are going to take action, solve it here and use collaboration and data to do that. And they've done that too, but it's in a smaller scale, but they've demonstrated that it's possible. And that's really in Australia where the communities that have been supported by philanthropy have worked really hard, have been taking that sort of Canadian North American model. Okay, well, before we get to that, let's look at the government concept. Now, as you say, big structural problems. There doesn't appear to be any appetite by any government of any colour to address these structural issues. Or am I, do I have that wrong? I wouldn't be as pessimistic about that. I think there has been some progress in Australia at state government levels in a way we have not seen in a long time. So, you know, the investment we saw in the Victorian government was significant and desperately needed. Now, it won't get us to where we need to be. It's actually just, in many ways, fixing the problem that we've had in the past and and not dealing with the future problems that are coming. But that was substantial. And we've had substantial investments in New South Wales for different things and the rest of it. But none of that's enough. And the one thing we know about homelessness is that we can't solve it on our own. Like, it can't be solved by local government, can't be solved by state government. It needs the federal government as well. And it needs community willing to support those government efforts as well. Everyone needs to take their part in solving this problem, but we've not had alignment. And the biggest gap in my mind at the moment is the federal government. We've got 
a federal government that says, look, it's not really their responsibility if they provide funding through their housing and homelessness agreement, but they see it as a state's responsibility and they don't engage on the issue, which is a real challenge. So how do you start to get them to engage? I mean, there is a, a generation of Australians who feel that they can't even get into the housing market, let alone that significant domino effect that affects so many others around not having a roof over their head or having precarious accommodation choices. How do you get a federal government to engage in what is a fundamental right of everyone who lives in this country or indeed any country? I mean, there's no disputing housing is a human right. I think, you know, everyone kind of understands that. It's how do you realise that? And the problem we've got at a federal government is they point their fingers to the states and say it's their responsibility. The states point their fingers to the Commonwealth and say we don't have the fiscal firepower to deal with this problem, we need the Commonwealth. And we're stuck in the status quo that we've been in for decades. And rather than getting better, in many ways, have been getting worse. So how do we break out of this kind of cycle that we're in, I think, is the key question for me. Because trying the same thing over and over again, mm. expecting a different result, you know, we know that that's the mm. definition mm. of exactly right. Mm. Having been involved in this sector for a long time, I was really attracted to this idea that, hang on, the structural things, there's the technical things that we do in the work that we all do in the homelessness and housing sectors and there's those structural issues. But in the middle, there's a kind of what we call an implementation space where there's so much that can be done and where often you can get agreement from everyone to say, look, we're going to work on this challenge because we all have a stake in it. But the strategy with government can't be the same old strategy, which is we go to government and we beat them with a bigger stick and say, you need to be more responsible and accountable. And don't you understand that housing is a human right? We've been trying that for a long time. It's not kind of working. And we need to keep doing that, you know, keep ramping that pressure up because if you don't try, you won't get the result. But we've also, I think, need another path. And that's where I think the advanced to zero movement that we're working on is rather than going to government and beating them with a stick and saying, look how big this problem is and it's terrible and it's getting worse and putting a negative frame on it and saying, why aren't you responsible? It's going to government and saying, we're trying to break this problem up, make it smaller and smaller and more specific and inviting to them to the table and saying, can you be a positive partner in this effort to drive something positive? So we're not going to government with a negative argument. We're going to government with a positive aspiration. You know, we all understand the strength-based approach for those of us who work in a human services kind of field. Well, let's take a strength-based approach to our advocacy to government and say, be part of something that's about making our society fairer and better by giving the most vulnerable a place and then getting specific, focusing on a place, focusing on a cohort and using data to go to government and say, hang on, all right, Commonwealth government, we don't agree with you that you think it's all the state's responsibility, but we could all agree that veterans are your responsibility, right? Commonwealth is responsible for veterans and veterans are homeless. So what are you doing to help us with the veterans? And vice versa for people with a disability and for old aged care. People are on the streets right now who are eligible for aged care packages or NDIS packages who don't get them. And they are people the Commonwealth are responsible for. But to date, we haven't been able to enumerate to particularly say exactly how many people there are. So if we go with this positive frame with specific data, with a collaboration of agencies and organisations and the private sector and philanthropy and everyone working collaboratively in a particular place saying, we've got 10 veterans, what can you do to help us, Commonwealth Government? That's a very different kind of advocacy ask to we've got a $30 billion ask over the next 10 years that you need to fix, otherwise you don't accept that housing is a human right, you know. It's a kind of a false dichotomy I'm painting there, but... It's a very different advocacy strategy and, 
you need to do that collaborative data-driven work to make it work. And that's that's what gives me confidence and optimism for the future, despite all the challenges we face. So effectively, what you're saying is that if you break down the problem into potentially different constituent components, you've got a greater potential to not only get Commonwealth government engagement, but also perhaps to achieve an outcome. Yeah. And ultimately, outcomes is what we all want here, right? Like meeting the government to say, you need to care about housing and homelessness more. I mean, we only want to do that in order to get the outcomes. But if we get the outcomes in a different way, let's do that. I think one of the other things that needs to change that our approach tries to help with is there is a pervasive mentality in the Australian community that homelessness is just normal, that if this is part of society or people don't think about it as much, And we really need to pierce that bubble and say, hang on, no, we can end homelessness. There are communities around the world that are ending it sustainably, ending it with data and proving that that can be done. And once that bubble's kind of pierced, the public kind of hold politicians to account in a much better way than we currently do. Because at the moment, it's kind of like, why doesn't the government care about housing? But why doesn't the government care about mental health or disability or all the other issues that government has to be accountable for? So, again, it's that different approach to sort of we've got to change the mindset in Australia that this is somehow normal. So why, where does that bubble uh, that this is a normal circumstance come from? What creates that bubble, do you think? One of the things that sort of really surprised me when I sort of first took on this this national role was, you know, doing media. And, and, and the first question you get when you do a sort of media interview on, on talkback radio or whatever else is, oh, but isn't homelessness a choice? Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't it a choice that, that people make? And, and the challenge with that is that if you're talking about rough sleeping, there is an element of choice. The choice is I would rather be on the street than in some of the crisis accommodation or the unsafe situation that I was being. So it's, you know, there is a sort of technical element of choice there, but the real choice, it's a choice of the least worst option. That choice narrative we've got to break down. And ultimately, I think the choice is us as a society as to whether or not we choose to allow this problem to continue or whether we choose to try and solve it because it's solvable. But anyway, I mean, what, where this mentality that homelessness is normal is because if you see something every day, I mean, I live in the inner city of Adelaide. And I walk to my office and I walk past at least three places where people regularly sleep rough and it becomes normalised. Um, and, you know, it, it shouldn't be, not in a country as wealthy, as prosperous as ours. You know, and in my hometown of Adelaide, we were recently recognised as the third most livable city mm. on the planet. <laughs> and, and we still have, as of tonight, 112-odd people that will sleep rough in the same CBD that got that recognition. One of the interesting things about this, though, and you've already mentioned it, but I suppose in a sense it's the the other bubble about all of this, is actually believing that it is a problem that's solvable. On the face of it, you know, those of us who have lived in inner cities for a number of years have perhaps become accepting of it as a consequence of modern Western society, an unhappy and sad reflection of modern society. How is it feasible for us to start to think about solving such a problem? And in thinking about that, can we allow ourselves to think that other similar endemic problems are also solvable? Well, I mean, let's take vaccines (laughs) or a a contemporary kind of example. Like, Polio, for example, was something that persisted all around the world and we managed to eradicate polio. And 
that was led by, you know, community-driven efforts and it was achievable. The same thing exists with homelessness and we just need to create this understanding. I think this is the biggest barrier we face that, you know, of course, the sort of recalcitrance might be too strong a word, but the inclination not to engage from the Commonwealth government level is a big challenge that we face. But I think the biggest challenge is this failure to recognise the data science that ending homelessness is possible because the data demonstrates it exists. And it's kind of like, you know, climate change or whatever else. Like the data shows that. Communities have done it. And it's easy for people to dismiss that and go, oh, yeah, it's a small community or it's this or that or it's not every form of homelessness. But it's been achieved. We achieved an end to polio. We put a person on the moon and it was hard to do the first time. But once we did it the first time, it became easier to do it the next times. So that's what we've got to do in Australia is demonstrate that ending homelessness is possible. It'll be the hard the first time and we'll get all the criticisms that we didn't do it everywhere at once and that we didn't do it for every cohort and all that kind of stuff. But it will pierce that bubble that this is actually something that's solvable. Uh, And that's really, I think, the biggest challenge we face as Australia at all levels, whether it's government that this is achievable, whether it's people who are cynical and worn out and have been working in the homelessness sector for a long time, we need to change those attitudes too, or whether it's the public who think there's some sort of choice involved in this, that it's actually a choice to live on the street. We need to pierce all of those bubbles. And I'm really inspired by those efforts of those communities in the United States and Canada that have demonstrated. I'm also inspired by Finland, and we need Mm. to try and copy that medal too. But I think the US-Canada model is that while we're waiting, or the step towards the Finland model. And sort of, you know, just to give you an example of one of these US communities, one of the first communities to end veterans' homelessness was the local government area of Arlington. Mm. But Arlington is the place in Washington, D.C., where Arlington Cemetery Mm. is that many people would be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And they said as a community, how can we be the place that houses America's war dead and have veterans sleeping on the street of our community? And so they went out and counted them all and said, we're going to move heaven and earth to house every veteran. And they have ended veterans' homelessness there now. And they are able to demonstrate that with data. And with a dynamic problem like veterans' homelessness in a place like that, it doesn't mean there's never a veteran on the street. What it means is that we can make the overall number of veterans very small. So it is rare that it occurs. And that anyone who does fall into homelessness in Arlington that's a veteran, that their experience is brief so that they rapidly rehouse and they don't spend large periods of time on the street, and that it's a one-time thing, that they're not cycling back into homelessness many times, as we know happens with many of the rough sleeping. So rare, brief and non-reoccurring is the kind of, that's what we mean by ending homelessness, over a period of time, not just at a point in time. So it's all very good to house all the veterans today, and then in two weeks' time there's another 50 out there. We've got to sustain that down to what we call functional zero. So that's what they've achieved in Arlington. And they said, as a community, we can't tolerate this. And, and that's what we're trying to do through the Advance to Zero movement is, is to rally communities like my hometown of Adelaide to say it's the third most livable city. How can we continue to have people sleeping on the streets without any shelter? Or communities like Melbourne or the Gold Coast or Byron Bay. These are all communities that have a strong sense of who they are, community pride, And it's about tapping into that and and activating that and then inviting other parts of government and philanthropy and business to help us with achieving that goal. So you've got a zero project in Adelaide and there's one here in Port Phillip. Take me through it. How do they work and at what stage are you at with them? Yeah, so we've got 14 communities that are sort of formally part of what we call our Advanced to Zero campaign in Australia. And we've got a bunch more that are wanting to be part of it and, and seeking to participate. 
And the journey for every community has been different. That's the mm. beauty of Australia and the massive challenge for our work because mm. no one starts with a blank sheet of paper. Like there's always community effort. Mm. It's about how do you rally that and, and build that. So every community on a journey on this has been a little bit different. Um, the first communities in Australia was really Brisbane and Perth. They ran what was called a Count Up campaign where they went out, identified everyone sleeping rough, and they said, we're going to house the most vulnerable first and we're going to do whatever it takes to house them all until we count up to the number of people we found on that day or that kind of period when they counted them all. And the, the big lesson from that is that we can, you know, we can house the people who people have thought previously were unhousable that, you know, chose to be homeless. Now, if you put the support and enough relentless commitment, you can house anyone. What we've learned from the US is that if you just house more people, there's really an inflow and an outflow issue here that we need to work with if you want to end homelessness. You need to not just house more people, but you need to prevent people from falling into homelessness in the first place. Mm. And, in fact, that's actually more of the challenge to ending homelessness than just housing people because we have a housing and homelessness system that when it's funded properly and when it gets the support it needs, it does really good things. It houses people really well. You know, that's our housing first models. We're really good at that when we fund it properly. But what about the prevention and stopping everyone from flowing in? And that's where the new communities have really started to focus on that. And, and that's where this idea of a zero project is, is counting down to zero rather than counting up to let's house as many people as we possibly can. Mm. So each community in Australia has kind of gone on that journey in a different way. Um, Port Phillip in, in Melbourne is really driving that countdown in Victoria. There's a number of other communities in Victoria with the support of launch housing and a strong commitment from local government. Uh, in New South Wales, there's an entity called the End Street Sleeping Collaboration, and they're really mm -hmm. driving that in Sydney and mm -hmm. Byron Bay and a few other places. Rua Community Services in WA and the West Australian Alliance are really driving this in a in number of communities over there. So the, probably the two states that have had the most investment from state governments in driving this methodology would be WA and New South Wales, mm -hmm. probably closely followed by South Australia. And then, you know, it's been a blend of philanthropy everywhere. Mm -hmm and business community engagement and the sector all saying, the homelessness and housing sector coming together and saying, look, we've been trying the same thing and expecting a different result for decades. We're going to try and do something different. You know, that's why a lot of these community organisations have come together to create these zero projects, but it, it does look very different in every community. And is that difference really about the way the community operates or is it really about the mix of agencies, philanthropy and government that's involved? How would you characterise those on-ground differences? I think it's the result, like, you know, at the federated model of Australia, like each state has a different housing and homelessness policy and system and the way in which they fund and those sorts of things. So that has a big impact. Um, philanthropy has been such an important part of driving innovation in these systems to enabling that, and philanthropy looks very different in every state and territory. It'd probably be no surprise to most people that, you know, Australia is, is very focused in New South Wales and Victoria, and if you're not in New South Wales and Victoria, there's a sort of very different dynamic. Um, so people can work at a state level in New South Wales but really benefit from national organisations where it doesn't work kind of that way if you're in Tasmania or WA or Queensland kind of thing, that those dynamics have had a big impact on how it's evolved. And then I think probably the next biggest thing is just individual leaders and individual organisations. Uh, there's been some real champions in WA and Queensland and Victoria, like all the places that have rolled out, there's been champions, right? And it's just been, I think, personalities that have recognised this and said, hang on, we need to do something different. We need some innovation. We need to take a different approach to trying to solve this problem. And those transformative leaders have really driven those projects. 
got the partners on board because, you know, collaboration and community organising are essential to this work. Uh, and that only happens when you have trust and credibility of, of individual champions who are willing to drive this work and philanthropy and business who are willing to back it. So how sustainable is it as an approach if it relies so much on those individual champions? Very good question. Um, well, time will tell. I think we're going through a phase of, you know, we're probably like in about our third phase of this work. Uh, there's a sort of that first phase where it was kind of count up goals. Uh, and then there was a little bit of a break. Then there was this recognition we need to count down. And then so there was another sort of wave of community organisations and leaders that came on board to drive countdown campaigns and the existing communities that were doing count up converted to countdown. And now I'd say we're probably in our third phase of now starting to get state governments to invest in this and roll it out in a more sustainable way. And we've only to date really seen that in New South Wales and WA. But even then, it's not perfect there. Like, it's not like they've, governments have completely funded everything that's needed. It's still been a blend. Like, both the West Australian Alliance and the End Street Sleeping Collaboration have relied heavily on philanthropy mm. in those places to help them do it. I think we'll probably be at a sustainability point when we get to the sort of fourth or fifth phase of this movement. But to get us going, as is the way with innovation, you pull the support wherever you can get it from put it all together and you get a critical mass. And that's what's, I think, getting increasingly to the point of sustainability, but certainly isn't there yet. And of course, you can't keep doing this unless you're feeling that there's some momentum driving you towards the outcomes you're after. How has that played out in each of those instances? Well, I think there's certainly momentum in what they're getting. So like, it's, it's sort of how do you measure it? So, so we're all engaged in system change, right? So system mm. change takes time and effort. But very much driven by data and demonstrating that at the moment. So the fact that out of the 16 communities, the numbers that we've got, four of them have reached a quality by name list status. So every community in the United States and Canada that has achieved functional zero or an end to homelessness over there achieved this quality by name list status first. And what it means is you can be assured that the data you've got represents the number of people on the street and it's not just at a point in time it's over time that inflow and outflow and you're able to rely on the data that you've got to know that it's telling you what you think it's telling you and that you can then test changes in your system and and to see what reaction that has and so we've got four communities that got quality by name list data three of those communities have got public dashboards that display that data so it can help change that public attention and awareness We've got count up data so we can tell you how many people we've housed through these projects, which is, you know, fantastic. There's a large number of people who've previously slept rough who are now housed through many of these projects, but we want to get to zero homelessness. So just housing lots of people is an output in our world. It's not an outcome. The outcome is when you get to proof points that show you've had a shift reduction in the amount of homelessness in your community or when you've ended homelessness for a particular cohort. And that might be really, really small to start with. So, for example, my hometown of Adelaide, we've got about 115-odd people on the buy-in list at any point in time. In that 115, there's a number that are veterans and that number of veterans is very small. But if we can end veterans' homelessness first and then move on and end homelessness for everyone who's got a disability and end homelessness for everyone who's Aboriginal, you know, all of those things add up and hold them and get to the point where we get to absolute functional zero for everyone in the rough sleeping cohort for the city. They're the kind of outcomes and milestones we want to get to. They're the kind of things that those communities in the United States have done. So how tailored are the responses for each of those community groups? How different is the solution for veterans as opposed to those with disability, for example? 
It has to be absolutely tailored. So the response to veterans in Adelaide will look very different to the response to veterans in Brisbane or the response to veterans will look very different to the response to disability. And this is the thing. We try to solve all these things as individuals in our organisations in isolation and you'll have 12 organisations working on ending rough sleepers homelessness in Adelaide and those 12 case managers will all be working in isolation. If they all got together and said, hang on, how are we going to help end disability homelessness? We might need a change from the way in which access is gained from the NDIS. If we go and collectively argue that point to the NDIS, they might change something or that there might be a slight tweak in the system or they might do a bit of outreach. And that's the kind of thing we're doing because there is eligibility from the NDIS for people on the street or aged care. And that's where it can't be solved by state governments alone. And if you want to solve the system problem as opposed to just an individual's problem, we need all the case managers to work together. And that's where these zero projects give you the data, give you the coordination mechanism to say, let's go and do that shared advocacy to the NDIS. Well, let's go and do the shared advocacy to the veteran support organisations and say, hey, we've got 10 veterans here. What can you do to provide support? And the moment you go and do that, those veterans organisations are like, oh, my God, we want to help you. We've, we just don't know how to engage with the homeless because we're not homelessness experts. Or you speak to the NDIS people, maybe not the best example, but in you know, different government agencies, there's always public servants who want to help in the realms of what they can control. And if you get back to that conversation we were having at the beginning around, if you think about a pyramid, there's the technical space at the top that we all do in our world. There's the structural space of policy and all the rest of it. Then there's that implementation space in the middle. These are the examples of like go and talk to the NDIS about what we can do without having to change legislation about the way the NDIS works, but just to get a better result for the 10 people that are eligible for the NDIS that are in this small community that we're working with. They're things we can change right now. And if we get a little bit of all of those kinds of tweaks, they add up to a lot and that can lead to system change. It, has, it, it does lead to system change. But that requires coordination and working amongst many agencies across places and that coordination and what is often called administration and no one wants to fund administration, <laughs> but that can be the biggest change in a system. Well, what you're actually talking about really fundamentally is one of those key elements that philanthropy, in a sense, tends to sponsor instinctively, and that's the collaborative impulse. Absolutely. And I think the benefit that we've got is philanthropy has always kind of tried to do that, but what we get through this model is we get the data and the evidence to say this is the exact impact that that coordination and philanthropy support for is having. Once you've got these communities that have got quality by an English status, because prior to that, it's kind of like flying in the dark. You're just hoping things will work, but you don't know. We spend all this money about evaluation and outcomes measurement after we've done things. And our approach is to set up the evaluation and, you know, how we're doing through creating a data and a binary list that helps you understand the impact that everyone's having in the system in real time. So you don't need to do an evaluation three years later. You can real-time evaluate. One of the interesting things about all of this is that so much of the starting point is actually now about collecting reliable data, isn't it? Mm. And a lot of the time, you know, like our work is what we call collective impact and there's many people who are aware of the collective impact initiative kind of world. I think part of the challenges of collective impact is it starts with collaboration and then it tries to find the data. And, you know, that can take a long time. Whereas our work's sort of saying, we've got a really clear data measurement process in place. We've done all that work. We're just trying to add the collaboration now. So it's not starting with a blank sheet of paper saying, oh, what do we want to do? And then how are we going to find the data? It's like, we're going to get the data and then drive the collaboration around that. That was the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson. 
and thanks for listening.